You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The third COVID-19 vaccine is on its way to the American public. What do pharmacists need to know? We'll talk about that and more next on Locked on Pharmacy. You are listening to the Locked on Pharmacy podcast, the insider's view into the world of pharmacy. Hello, this is Frank Fortin with the American Pharmacists Association. Now there are three, three vaccines for COVID-19. On February 27th, the FDA authorized the emergency use of a vaccine developed by the Johnson & Johnson subsidiary, Janssen Biotech. What do pharmacists need to know about this product? Once again, we've asked Michael Hogue and Stephen Foster back to talk about it. Michael is president of APHA and a member of the CDC Working Group on COVID Vaccines. Stephen Foster is APHA's liaison to the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Michael and Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Michael, let's start with you. Um, So uh, we've got three vaccines now. The third one is a little different, uh, somewhat different from the other two. Aside from the obvious one, which is the single dose, what makes this vaccine different from the other two that that would be relevant to pharmacists? Well, um, our first two vaccines, the Moderna and Pfizer products, are both messenger RNA products. Um, And this product is an adenovirus 26 vector, or you'll see it abbreviated AD26. And uh, essentially, this is a non-replicating adenovirus that uh, uh, is coated with the S protein, which is the spike protein, and uh, the, the RNA for that. Um, of course, the adenovirus then goes into the human cell uh, and uses the machinery of the human cell in the nucleus of the cell to reproduce the uh, antigen and allows us then to uh, produce antibodies in response to that. So it's a bit different in that regard. I think the messenger RNAs uh, enter the cytoplasm of the cell and uh, deposit the messenger RNA where it's replicating and then uh, producing antibodies. So there's a little bit of difference there. Important, I think, for listeners to know that uh, despite the fact that the adenovirus Uh, does go into the nucleus of the cell, it does not have a transcriptase enzyme, which means that it cannot change the host or human's DNA. Uh, It just simply uses the machinery of the host cell to be able to produce the antigen so that antibody can then be produced in response to that antigen. So I think that's the biggest biggest change, uh, Frank, in terms of uh, uh, different mechanisms of action, uh, primarily. From what you've seen, um, is there any difference in counseling patients with regard to potential side effects? Well, not really. I mean, the, the, the adverse event profile looks pretty similar between all of these vaccines or among all of these vaccines. Um, uh, sore arm is pretty common, uh, redness at the site of injection, limitation of arm movement, the development of a headache or some fatigue following the dose is pretty common. Um, most other adverse events are relatively uncommon, even with the, with the other vaccines. But uh, yeah, it's pretty similar in terms of its adverse event profile. And there's nothing so far that's shown up with any of these uh, vaccines, uh, whether it's just the primary study with the J&J vaccine or whether the uh, long-term safety studies that we continue to monitor and that data were recently presented on 
I know real concerns with the safety of these vaccines. Michael, when the Janssen data first came out, uh, the first impulse for some people was to compare the ep efficacy rates among the three products. Is this a valid approach or is it not and why? Yeah, that's a it's a great point. Uh, I, in fact, we hear this all the time in clinical practice. I'm, I'm hearing it a lot this week among uh, uh, patients that I'm talking with. Um, patients kind of fall into one of two categories. They, they're, yes, I want the Janssen vaccine. It's only one dose. And I don't have to get another dose. So they're anxious to get it. Or they say, well, it doesn't work as good as the other two vaccines. I think I'll wait until I can get uh, a Moderna or a Pfizer dose. And, and here's the deal. It is a little bit like comparing apples and oranges in some regards, because the way a case was counted in the study for the Janssen vaccine uh, and the type of symptoms a person had to have to be counted as a case was just a little bit different uh, than, and it was enough different that the mild and uh, some of the milder cases of, uh, of COVID were actually counted uh, in the Janssen study. And so if you look at the efficacy data, the Janssen study says that it's 66% effective. And the other thing that you also need to know is that the variants uh, that are circulating now uh, were also there because this study was done across uh, multiple countries, uh, had the most diverse uh, uh, people groups in terms of uh, ethnicity and race included, along with those um, uh, uh, those variants. And so as a result of that, we see a different, uh, slightly different uh, efficacy. So the front end efficacy for mild cases was 66%. However, if you look at hospitalizations, serious disease and death, uh, the efficacy was actually as good as the mRNA vaccines uh, running from 88% up to 100%, depending on which of the serious adverse events you're looking at. Very good. Steve, let me uh, turn to you here. Um, you were obviously attending the advisory committee meetings um, over the weekend, Sunday and Monday, that is. And there was a lot of discussion during the, uh, uh, during the meetings, at least the portions that I was listening to, about the challenges of vaccine confidence among some patients. Um, how can this vaccine address that challenge? Does it make it easier? Does it make it harder? Um, is it a different conversation? What about that issue? First of all, thank you for, uh, again, having us back on. Um, and but even before I answer that question, I want to talk about, just mention the successes we've had. Um, when you really take a look at it, we have already delivered over 72 million doses of vaccine, and that's in a three or four week time period. I mean, that, that to me is a remarkable feat in itself. And so people are saying, well, I don't get the vaccine. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I've been on the list too long and all, but I mean, that is an awful lot of vaccines. Um, the issues are is that every state, uh, is really doing their own thing as far as the prioritization framework. So it's confusing to a lot of patients about, about what to do. And the CDC gave guidelines, but but it's doing. Also, the uh, thing that was pointed out is that we haven't estimated about, uh, by the end of March, 120 million doses of Pfizer, 100 million doses of Moderna, and now 20 million doses of Janssen's uh, um vaccine but we have a, a the supply is increasing so that's the good news from this now the the um when you talk about the the challenges of vaccine confidence basically when we were doing the evaluations of this and we we do the evaluations uh, on all of them using an evidence to to framework recommendation 
there's a seven domains that they look at. And one of the domains is acceptability. Uh, is it acceptable to the, to the patients themselves? Um, and so as you look at that, the, it, it's a very difficult thing to measure. And, and it changes with time, by the way. People, the longer they've been waiting for the vaccine, the, they, they uh, are seeing that it's okay to get it. Other people, they've got friends that are getting it. So the opinions are changing. We've kind of plateaued out, but it's going up a little bit every month as we do that. Um, so they really, what they did identify at the meeting was actually where the hesitancy is. Um, for example, um, there was the ones that are, do not intend to get the vaccine. There was higher incidence in the younger adults. There was a higher incidence in women, uh, the non-Hispanic black adults, uh, adults that are not living in the metropolitan areas. And then uh, adults with uh, lower uh, education and income were identified as the groups that have spe especially said they don't want it. Now, the proportion of people that are actually intending to get the vaccine are between 42 and 60, 86% based on the, the, the studies that, that they've done so far. Um, uh, as of February, the latest study that they presented um, at this meeting was that 46% said they'll get it as soon as, as it's available, 27% said, I want to take a wait and see attitude. And by the way, I'm seeing an awful lot of that. Let's, let's wait and see how it comes out. And then about 18% of the survey said they definitely would not get it. So those are, are the, um, the beliefs that, they, that, that goes along with this. Now, we did not really address what to do, um, but they have over time. And, and realistically, the one thing I can, I can say that has come out the most has been education. Uh, if we can somehow educate the the, um, the population, and it takes time to sit down and talk with somebody to find out what their concerns are and what we can do to, to overcome their concerns. And that's the same thing with, with almost anything we see in medicine is count, patient counseling. You know, we talk about that all along, but just talking to the patients, they, they many times will listen to what a pharmacist has to say or, or a physician or a nurse, but you got to take time to do that. It's very difficult to do, um, and it's not happening in the mass vaccination clinics, because that's just that. I mean, these people already decided they want it, so it's just a mass clinic. So uh, if, if we get the opportunity to, to connect with the patients, it'll be education. There's also a lot, uh, some discussion, quite a bit of discussion actually about the impact of uh, this vaccine and the use of the other vaccines in advancing health equity. Do you think this will help or um, um, in, in advancing uh, health equity for uh, um, hard to reach populations? You know, um, the advantage of this vaccine is, as we said, it's a single dose. The advantage is it's got a more convenient storage uh, capability now. It, uh, it can be kept frozen for three months at a regular freezers. It does not require dilution. You don't have to, to, to mix it up. Um, and so there's some advantages in the fact that it's easier to transport, maybe for the mobile pop-up clinics. Um, it's easier for these administration sites now to open up, say, in the, in the physician's office or in other places. Um, and it's also an advantage to certain people. For example, those that are mobile, they're only going to be there at one time. It's also for people who can't return for a second dose for some reason. Um, and it's that would also be for something like seasonal workers or, or right, something like exactly, that. Exactly. Exactly. And so for those particular populations and, and the administrators, it, it is an advantage to that. We, we also talked a little bit about um, should we make new recommendations based on this type of stuff? And we, we really decided, and I, I was glad to see this because I agreed with it, but the ACIP really decided not to make any recommendations for that, to let the local um, 
facilities, local the localities really make their own decisions on how they want to use that. So we did not come up with any guidelines where this specifically should be used. I noticed that the recommendation from ACIP was limited to uh, people age 18 and over. Um, what about vaccinating, say, um, younger people who are going to school? Because that's one of the public policy decisions being debated just about in every state now is how quickly do we get uh, young people back in school? Would the vaccines help and how quickly can we uh, get them vaccinated? Well, as you're aware, the the uh, the ACIP is made up of about half pediatricians. So you, you know there's a discussion going on on that. The problem is, is that um, it's not approved by the FDA in this emergency use to use it in children uh, less than 18. We actually did discuss that a little bit. And uh, and it was really decided that if the emergency use uh, for the FDA states 18 and over, we have to stick with 18 and over. Now, that's not saying you couldn't go back and look at it and change it, but we only work on on studies that are actually proven that it's safe and effective. And we haven't seen those studies yet. They are doing them, they're performing them now, but they have not yet uh, published them or us released the, the data from them. Um, they are ongoing. I know they did talk about it with the Janssen vaccine a little bit about the fact that they got current studies going on in children, but it's uh, it's not there yet. So we're, we're, uh, we're still going after it. And, and you know, we're really not very far into the list of the the groups that we talked about, there's an awful lot of people in that list that we haven't approached yet. The higher risk people, uh, we haven't even, in most states, not even gotten into the 1C group, which is the the patients with medical um, medical issues. So we've got a lot of people yet to do. Frank, I know one of the things that, uh, speaking about uh, vaccinating younger people and not necessarily children, but the RAND Corporation this last week came out with an analysis that they did on how do we achieve herd immunity and and reach a large you know the largest benefit from a small number of vaccinations and you know our natural reaction when we started the vaccine campaign and it was the decision making process that ACIP went through was to first of all vaccinate our oldest uh, patients who are most vulnerable and most likely to die and and Rand Corporation found that the public health benefit of doing that, while individually was very important because it prevented deaths, only provided protection for about one percent of the total population because uh, that it, those older people tended to stay quarantined in their own homes and didn't circulate in the community. But if we vaccinated frontline workers who were younger, who were in essential jobs that interact with people, say grocery store workers or food workers and so forth, if we immunize that population, we could actually reduce the spread of the disease by about 95% because those are the individuals that actually come into contact with uh, all of the other folks. And they are the ones that actually end up spreading the virus to the older people who are more vulnerable. And so I think it speaks to the complexity of these decisions that state health departments have to make. I think CDC did a great job, and I guess um, it's a little uh, conflict of interest for me to say that or for Steve to say that because we're involved in those conversations. But, uh, uh, but, the, but I think they did a good job at setting out good guidelines, but every state is really trying to grapple with who's next. Uh, who's next? And that, and and every state has taken a little bit different approach on how to do that. And I think you know pharmacists uh, just need to pay close attention to their state's uh, 
prioritization scheme and how that's working out and, um, and, and use whatever vaccine we have available, whether it's the Janssen vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine to try to help get this pandemic under control and get us back to some state of normalcy. So uh, I, I think my advice to pharmacists, don't get too tied up in 66% versus 85% versus 95% versus whatever. Remember, these vaccines are here to stop a pandemic and our primary goal is to do that. And, and all of these vaccines are very helpful in that, in that process. We need herd immunity. Yes. Um, Michael, let's talk about a little bit more about some other populations. Um, at this point, how would you recommend pharmacists counsel um, uh, patients who are pregnant? Well, at this, uh, at this juncture, we actually now have several weeks of safety data on the use of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine in pregnant women. And in fact, at the ACIP meeting this uh, last Monday, uh, Tom Shimakaburo from the CDC, who does uh, all of the analysis of safety data uh, for the agency, uh, looked at um, all of the incidences of pregnancy which occurred after someone was vaccinated. And what, he, what they found in the analysis was that there was no uh, safety signal in patients who are pregnant. So in other words, no increased risk beyond what we would normally see of uh, miscarriage or other uh, uh, infant or birth related uh, defects or effects. And so um, that's good news. What that means is that while the vaccines don't carry a specific recommendation for pregnancy, they are permissively used in pregnancy when uh, a pregnant woman discusses the use of the vaccine with his or her healthcare provider. But pharmacists shouldn't fear using the vaccine in pregnant women if a pregnant woman desires to get the vaccine. You know, what was interesting about this discussion is that most of the local effects and most of the systemic effects they talked about, it was actually lower in the pregnant women than we than it was in the uh, in the non-pregnant population. I, I thought of interest. They had a little bit more fatigue, and that's exactly what I expect out of a, a person who was pregnant. They have a little bit more fatigue. But other than that, it was really lower in many of the cases. Yeah. Very good. Um, what about patients who are immunocompromised? Um, what would be the counseling for them right now? So I think the main thing is they're at high risk of COVID infection, period. Uh, we know that's the case. And having poor outcomes from COVID if they were to come down with the illness. Um, the vaccine is safe in patients who are immunocompromised. In fact, the HIV patients were included in all of the studies that were done in all three uh, big studies that were done. Um, and uh, the, the one thing that we have to counsel patients on is because their immune system is weakened for whatever the reason is, uh, they may not mount as robust as of, of an immune response uh, with the Janssen vaccine as they would if their immune system were normally functioning. So as a result, they will still need to take caution and care to mask when they're out in public, to socially distance, um, and to maintain a good hand hygiene uh, and, and wash their hands frequently. I think that's really the key message. We can't forget to tell our immunocompromised patients that, that or remind them that uh, get the vaccine, but still do all the other things to keep yourself healthy. And one other thing about uh, uh, different populations, um, are there any concerns about uh, patients who've already had COVID with symptoms, any concerns about them getting a vaccine as sort of a, 
preventive uh, measure there? No, not really. In this in this case, it's uh, first of all, it's it's really difficult to say as a provider when you're given the vaccines is to screen people who's had that. So the burden on on the screening is would be tremendous, and the and the ACFP really doesn't want that. Um, and so um, we don't know a lot of information about the pr- protection. Is the protection for the vaccine better than the protection from the from the COVID? They have stated in the past that those that have had the disease do build antibodies, so they can actually be a little bit more relaxed about coming in right away to get it. Interesting enough, they had made a statement of three months. Well, that was back at a time when when we only had about three months worth of data. However, now they're not extending that, saying we have more. A few studies have come out to show that. I tell you what is interesting that you're going to find out, though, from around the world is that there are some places that are now stating if you if you only had if you've had COVID disease, you only need one dose of the mRNA vaccine and because we're going to make the vaccine go uh, extended. And that is not a recommendation of ours at all. And it was discussed quite a bit at the at the problem. There's not enough data right now to say that that really is a valid statement. It might be. One of the things, though, that they did mention was the fact that the neutralization antibody, our activity of the vaccines, the, the, the actual uh, antibody production um, is, is much higher on the second dose than it is on the first dose. So uh, if you skip that second dose, we don't know whether the natural disease would do that, but we're afraid that it might not. So, uh, and plus the other thing too, is that the FDA has made a statement that said you give two doses of this vaccine. So that, that again would require a change in the emergency use authorization if we did that. So, so yes, uh, they should get the vaccine. They can be a little bit more relaxed if it's, if it's been current. Do not come in and get a vaccine if you're actively infected. And, uh, but still, still you could get the vaccine. We should get the vaccine. Steve, I want to ask you about the uh, review and deliberation process for the now three vaccines. Um, what have we learned about going through this process now three times? And presumably there'll be more that come before the FDA and CDC. Um, what did we learn about these that we can apply to future uh, uh, deliberations? Well, if you notice this last meeting, uh, we have, were a two-day meeting, but the first meeting that we approved uh, recommended, uh, recommended the, the vaccine on the first day. So it's faster. And that is because we use what's called the evidence to recommendation framework. Um, and that particular thing has the seven domains that I mentioned before, but things such as, is, the, uh, public, is this a public health problem? Well, obviously, we, we already have answers to that. Uh, is, is the benefits uh, outweigh the harms? Uh, those are numbers you plug in, but they've done the groundwork for it. What is the value of the population? What do they feel about it? We've done studies on that. Though they do update the stuff, it's still a lot of it is is now easier to to put in there and plug away and go through it. So uh, those types of things. But we still look at the the uh, great evaluation of the studies, which is evaluates how how good the studies are. And we plug them into this uh, this framework to become more objective on how we do it. So it's still an objective measurement of how we, we look at it, but it's just a little bit quicker. Um, one last question for each of you. Um, start with Michael first. We're almost three months into this uh, vaccination phase of the pandemic. Um, it's amazing to think that it was only three months ago to me, at least in my, in my world, it seems like a lot longer than that, but a lot has happened. What uh, what observations do you have um, thinking back from, say, the middle of December to, to, to today about this entire process? Well, I think that uh, first my first observation is that uh, 
I'm just so impressed with how pharmacists have stepped up in local communities and come to the aid of their nation. I mean, it's it's obvious to me uh, that that pharmacists have uh, really uh, seen this as a way to help bring the pandemic to an end and have really stepped up. I mean, we hear story after story after story, and it, it makes me feel good to see our profession really taking this lead role um, in getting the vaccine into people's arms. So that's one thing. The second thing is, is that I've, I've learned that uh, while there's some vaccine hesitancy in groups uh, early on, as we release new groups, uh, vaccine hesitancy does melt away. And, and now that we're hitting at about 70 million doses, I'm finding fewer and fewer people object being vaccinated and are looking for an opportunity. So, you know, we had some objecting healthcare workers in the early days uh, that didn't want to immediately get the vaccine. And in the last week, I've immunized quite a number of healthcare workers who uh, were hesitant in December to get the vaccine, but now are convinced that it's making a huge difference in our community. So I think that that's, you know, what we're learning. Just be patient with people because people will come along. Uh, sometimes it takes people a little longer to make those decisions. And then the other thing, too, is that uh, the science here is just fascinating. I mean, it, when you think about the discovery potential of what, what we've been able to discover as human beings with vaccines. I mean, we've got not only these three vaccines, but Novavax has a vaccine that's coming out that's a spike protein that's connected to an adjuvant uh, that's a very different mechanism of action from these three than, than these vaccines that are already there. Uh, AstraZeneca has another adenovirus vector vaccine that's being used. And and there's uh, three other vaccines that are being used in other countries that are adenovirus and, and whole virion uh, vaccines. And so there's just so much innovation here in science and creativity. And, and it's great to see that. I mean, it really is inspiring when you stop and think about what's gone into uh, just getting this thing ended. Um, I, I'm, I'm uh, hopeful and I believe uh, I see a lot more hopeful people now people that seem to have uh, a positive view of where we're headed in the future. Steve, what are your observations? I agree with Michael about pharmacists stepping forward. This is, and pharmacists always do step forward. Every time we have a disaster somewhere in the, in the country, the pharmacists are, are there. I think the, the blessing we have is that Michael has been on the, the work group for the COVID. They have met every week since this whole thing started. So it's a massive amount of time on, on Michael's part. And Michael's been very vocal. I've had to say very little at the meetings because of what Michael said behind the scenes. Um, and it's, it's primarily because Michael sits there and says, put pharmacists first in this whole process. Don't, don't sit there and delay. And they're finding out the pharmacies are doing a lot better than the health departments are doing all, all in all. So it's uh that's, that's the good part. The, the other thing too is that um, pay attention to what the the FDA says about these vaccines because we're not going to change that. Base, even though they're saying things like maybe only give one dose so we can so we can uh, increase the supply, uh, we're not changing those kind of recommendations. If it's in the uh, EAU, that's where it's going to stay. And uh, the last thing that I think is exciting about this is the fact that we have new vaccine platforms that are being uh, shown here, and these platforms may be used in other vaccines in the future as we come out. So it's, it's uh, they're faster to produce. And look how fast we got this through the approval. Maybe in the future, it won't take five years to get a vaccine on the market if we have something like that. So I, I think that that we're not gonna be going backwards when we see see uh, the production of vaccines in the future. And these new uh, 
these new platforms are just exciting. Very good. Michael Hogan, Steve Foster, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And that's it for Locked on Pharmacy. For more information, visit APHA's resources on COVID-19 at pharmacist.com slash coronavirus. This is Frank Fortin for the American Pharmacists Association. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Pharmacists Association, the largest professional association of pharmacists in the United States. 